Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, I sit down with Martin, who is a core developer on the Geth client and in charge of security for the Ethereum Foundation. We talk about security, blockchain development, and advice for new programmers wanting to get into this space. This week's sponsor is POA Network. It isn't easy to create on-chain randomness on the blockchain. To address this issue, POA Network is building and optimizing their own verifiable delay function, or VDF. A VDF is slow to compute and quick to verify. Potential applications could be leader elections and consensus protocols and public randomness beacons. To learn more about POA Network open source VDF, written in the Rust programming language, which we all know Frederick is a big fan of, please visit github.com slash POA Network slash VDF. Thanks again, POA Network. Now, here's Frederick's interview with Martin. So I'm sitting here with Martin from the Ethereum Foundation, who I've uh, been wanting to get on the podcast and also have been pinging on Twitter a couple of times about it. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So again, we want to dig in today on what it's like to be a core developer, what the job is, sort of what's on top of your mind uh, in your day-to-day life. And I just want to start a little bit on digging into your background. How did you get started in programming? So I got started in programming in when I was, when I was uh, about 15 years old, I think. Uh, I had this pretty good uh, computer teacher uh, who taught us some basic C programming, I think. Then I kind of had a hi- hiatus. And it wasn't until after I finished uh, uh, high school, or w- what's it called, college, university. Yeah. I believe it's the yeah. <laughs> correct term. <laughs> high school would be uh, UNOSIT. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, so after university, I, I started programming at a small startup and did programming for a number of years. After that, uh, in like, and that was 2005, and then 2008, sorry, 2006, we were acquired by Yahoo, and they have this kind of uh, security group called the Paranoids, and uh, they they want one person at each local office to be a local paranoid, uh, so that hat kind of fell on me, and then I started a bit with security. And then in 2008, I went full-time into security and did only security stuff for uh, a number of years. And right now, yeah, I'm I'm happily back doing both the things I enjoy, programming and hacking, well, security stuff. Cool. That's interesting to hear that path into security as well, because... Security is something I've been like infosec type security is something I've been interested in a long time. And I, at one point in my life, I tried to sort of get into it, but it's a very hard space to get into without like, if you look for a job, you'll find your typical like IT security, make sure the Windows servers are patched type of yeah, security. So, so there are these, uh, and, but that was quite interesting when I, when I came into the field. 
which was so let's say it was in 2006 2007 ish when most of the and that was in the context of yahoo which is mainly is was mainly web and for them the like security issues were cross-site scripting sql injection not so much the old school um more low level network penetration and um, not like the corporate things that you would expect like patching patching your windows environment and all that but it mainly like make sure these web products are don't have the, the typical web application security vulnerabilities and for me coming from a, a programming background i found that it was really kind of easy to get into the field because for everyone who came from the like network side uh, or the physical security side they had difficulties adapting and finding these kinds of vulnerability that require you either to really automate the process but also to understand the programming mistakes that are made and how to to detect like dom-based javascript cross-site scripting which really you need to be programmer to kind of discover and prod you also had um if i understand correctly i mean you when you were in the security space you were doing a bit of audits and you also had like a bout in the financial sector of the world yes so i was a consultant uh for like yeah seven they say i know five six seven years and uh i got a bit tired of that in the end because it's um yeah, it's it's a lot of work and short assignments, which are very intense. And after a couple of years, uh, <laughs> you get kind of tired of it. I don't want to stay, be sitting stable somewhere. Uh, so I wound up at Nasdaq uh, in Stockholm, Nasdaq OMX. Uh, first at the internal audit, and then at the infosec. And in total, but that was that kind of coincided with uh, my interest for Ethereum uh, becoming larger and larger. <laughs> so, yeah, I was there for I don't know roughly a year until I finally moved on to Ethereum instead. I don't know if it's public. I hope it is. <laughs> I don't know, but Nasdaq has a blockchain group in Stockholm as well. Did you know about that? Were you part of that? Uh, yes, I know about that, but I, uh, I was not part of that. Uh, I was in the fringes a bit and uh, had some talks with them. Yeah, it's just curious. So how did you, um, like get into the blockchain space then? Like what was your entry? You know, did you know about Bitcoin and super fascinated all the way or was it someone reaching out to you or how did you get involved? I don't remember when I first heard about Bitcoin, but I think the big awakening was uh, I was at what was it DevCon nineteen in Las Vegas. DevCon, not DevCon. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. So the big uh, security conference in Las Vegas, and Dan Kaminsky, I remember he was going to give a talk uh, where he had researched Bitcoin, and I think a lot of us in the security field were like, "This is gonna be fun, popcorn time," and I saw that. Sp- talk from dan kaminsky who i i mean i think is uh i respect his work and he kind of said that he i mean he'd, he'd found some 
minor things and he was wondering if it would you know the chain growth how that would evolve and would lead to centralization but he really also actually said that this is it's almost like someone has been here before us and it was so well written and he could not find any good exploits on it and that from that point i was like wow this if if dan dan kaminsky can't find anything worse than this then wow this might actually be a thing uh so that kind of got me started looking into cryptocurrencies and bitcoin and then i started reading i remember reading the blog post that vitalik wrote about this new thing that he he'd been exploring in his mind and in blog posts uh, about ethereum yeah and then i just kept on reading and following the evolution of ethereum and it wasn't until i think at the end of uh, was poc 9 uh, the ethereum they announced this bounty so that there would be bounties for the miner who mined the block with the lowest difficulties and there would be bounty for someone who could make a consensus split of the network yeah so and that kind of really nerd sniped me and i started looking into the vm implementations for cpp ethereum and python and go ethereum did you end up getting any bounty i did not well not in the actual not then and there but i got addicted to to to, to reading the vm implementations and experimenting with the EVM and just putting in I mean I didn't I didn't compile solidity I just put together like okay I want to I want to see what happens if if uh, this opcode and then that opcodes and then followed by this and I put together uh, strings of bytecode by by hand and fed them into geth and fed them into the cpp alice thing and just um, and it took a while it took a long time until I eventually started finding vulnerabilities yeah and, and then and that kept going for like, I don't know, is it a year and a half or something like that. Yeah, I found consensus vulnerabilities in Python, uh, global denial of service in Geth, and, and several uh, consensus vulnerabilities. So, I mean, coming from that relatively strong Bitcoin background, a story that I hear a lot is that Bitcoin is cool, it's cryptocurrency, but it's not like really speaking to me. And when I saw Ethereum, I realized that like this is the story for me as well. I realized that um it can be more than currency it's decentralizing any data did right. you have that like moment as well or was it just like oh ethereum is this new thing and i can play with this and i and then it went from there no so the big thing uh was was the original blog post by vitalik where he described this this mechanism whereby externally you know, events in the world could affect other events in a so trustless way. And that was really the the big thing. But secondly, uh, for me, Bitcoin has always been this kind of uh, opaque thing where you have these cryptographic inputs and outputs. And you, it's more like a mathematical construct uh, that doesn't really speak to me. I'm not a cryptographer. Whereas Ethereum speaks to me as a programmer uh, much more, where the entire where the Ethereum is more like it's more like what a programmer would uh, dream up instead of what a mathematician would dream up. That's kind of how I see it. Your entry into the space and playing with opcodes reminds me of uh, the success of uh, Minecraft's uh, creator 
Marcus's game after Minecraft. It was uh, he oh, made a that? game called Zero X Ten C or something, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to be like a space simulation game where every spaceship has its own computer, and he specified the VM for this computer with like its own offcodes. And it became like it just spread all over the place. You got programmers from, from every corner, like trying to write programs for this computer. And you had people writing compile. Like this was before there was a playable game. It was like mm. he released a spec of this VM and with some screenshots of like a spaceship. And um, people wrote like compilers and you know C compilers and everything for it. And uh, it was kind of amazing to see. But I think that draws in a lot of people. Like here's this concrete thing you can play with yeah definitely so coming into like this role that you have now you're sort of blockchain developer can you explain a little bit more what it is that you do at the ethereum foundation what's your day-to-day uh, sort of tasks yes so at the ethereum foundation uh, i'm the security lead for ethereum specific things so i i've handed off the kind of organizational security stuff uh and and focus on so i i've kind of <clears throat> my work is split in two so one is the security stuff where i try to uh focus on the health of ethereum as a platform and the infrastructure so the what is the state of, of ethereum and how's the the network health and are there any tooling we need to better uh inspect and see what's happening on the network um cross client consensus uh, and cr- client denial of service uh, kind of re- how resistant are we so on that part of the job is like python scripting and fun hacky coding to make sure we have the tools to to have eyes into the network and eyes on the chain benchmarking suite like benchmarking clients and and trying to dream up malicious combinations of opcodes that could trigger slow block processing uh so and it, it's, it's from that need that tools like evm lab have been developed uh, where there's also a faster engine and stuff like that and then i have this other part of the job that i've uh, managed to become part of of well I've, they've let me finally become part of the core developers of go ethereum which I really wouldn't have thought a couple of years ago because my entry into Golang was through actually auditing the source code of Go Ethereum. That's how I learned Go programming. Uh, and now I'm, I'm one of the guys who, who actually has the commit bit on Go Ethereum. And I try to mainly focus on the security features. Right now, one of, one of the projects that I've been working on for like the last year is this thing called Clay, which is we're going to rip out all the account management from Geth and put it in uh, another binary, which Geth can talk to and which could reside in a virtual machine or in a, a USB armory, something like that. But also the general maintenance work of, of Geth. So uh, coming both from the security background and as a core developer, what do you think that you need to think about like as a hard core developer what are the things that should be on top of mind as you work on this what should be on the top of the mind for a core developer i think you need to try to get as as good picture of the ecosystem as possible 
And really, any changes that we make, try to really weed out what is this, what effects and consequences does this have for all the players in the ecosystem? Like if we do a, if we change the EVM, that could have consequences in, in places we hadn't considered. Uh, I mean, there are, yes, there are us developers and there are end users and there are DAP developers, but there are also uh, exchanges, which, yeah, they use our products, but they also use like additional infrastructure on top of it, which might make certain assumptions and which might be using some parts of the EVM or the RPC that we're not really, we, we don't think is that important, but turns out it is. So we need to have lots of com communication with, uh, yeah, with the general public and with all these different interest groups that have specific needs. I think that comes into play a lot with the RPC APIs, even if I think there was one case where Parity was not following the spec or the spec had changed or something. So we had to update an endpoint. And what the previous endpoint returned was, was not incorrect, but it was like the wrong thing for that API to return. But when we changed it to match the spec, a lot of exchanges came, or miners, or both, I don't know, <laughs> came to us and were like, hey, we've built all this stuff around this API and like you've now changed it, so we have to go change our code. Uh, why did this happen? And us saying like, yeah, we're just following the spec doesn't really help them. It's not uh, consoling them very much. So yeah, when you sort of get into all of this, you need to be forward thinking in that regard as well. I yeah. think. Yeah. And there was this one bug <laughs> which was sitting in the RPC for a long time. And I think it was never uh, no I think nobody tripped on it. But it could have been really, really bad. And it's fixed since a long time now. But so there was this if you ask get give me this transaction, it gave it get gave you back transaction and i think um so if there was data supplied in the transaction the json struct showed it as data however if you wanted to submit this transaction you needed to have it as input the json field input so it could be that you like failed to send a transaction and then you okay give me back the transaction i'll try again and you copy paste it into a new geth console and try to submit it again and it winds up in the inputs and gets what just doesn't care about it and suddenly you have a transaction without any data so if that's a contract deployment then you're kind of screwed because yeah. you might have sent value with it and these kind of thing when we discovered that we're like whoa that could have been so bad but we managed to avoid it yeah to summarize i guess you're saying like have a perspective of the impact of the code that you're writing right but it also and it's also when we consider future changes to the evm like for example there's there was this eep uh, about transaction abstraction which in theory was a kind of simple eep but in practice it would mean that transactions uh, could be theoretically executed many times and that the transaction hash could not be mapped to uh, one particular execution 
because you could have the same transaction in multiple blocks. Uh, and it's kind of hard because I would assume that a lot of uh, over overlay systems would use a transaction hash as a unique identifier in databases for, for index, indexing. Uh, and that would probably screw them over uh, quite a lot if they can no longer use the transaction hash as a unique index. So coming back to this idea of a core developer and what they need, what type of person, like what, what properties of a person do you see succeed in this space? And by succeed, I mean like effectively contribute code and be valuable. Yeah, so I think you definitely need to be the kind of person that don't... I mean, you need to be communicative, but you can't let that stop you. You can't be some. You, you can't just wait for someone to tell you what to do, but instead see see what you want to do and do it and talk to the people that you need to talk to, ask the questions you need to ask, but um, have your own drive to move forward uh, in the direction you want to move forward because there is no... Yeah, there, there, I mean, there is no big architect that will tell you and there's no committee to, to exactly say what needs to be done at any given point. You need to kind of have that drive yourself yeah i think a lot of people are looking to the eips for this kind of direction but it only covers a fraction of what actually needs to be done on a client yes talking about this sort of protocol design level of eips and changing the evm spec or um you know doing essentially like protocol changes or protocol design how does that differ in the type of work that you need for like actual implementation work do you see that these two always go hand in hand or is like protocol design this separate field that you can live in without considering implementation and implementation is just like taking the spec and implementing it or well no yeah so so i'm for the most part it really, really helps if the person who writes the suggested change has a very intimate knowledge about how the EVM works under the hood in a very low-level way in order to figure out all these quirky edge cases that may arise in, in different kind of scenarios. Because the EVM, I think the EVM is a lot more complex than most people understand or most people truly know because most people they're only exposed to the kind of uh, nice execution model i mean a couple of opcodes that execute when in your solidity they're not really exposed to the uh, mechanics of what happens after the transaction and the you know like the refunds and and the uh, suicide uh, deletion and the all the, all the mess about touched accounts which need to be cleaned and all those kind of intricate rules which really creates very weird edge cases for state transitioning. So you feel like it, it has to go hand in hand or it's just that that's the most effective way? or No, I think, I mean, some EAPs can be written uh, without any knowledge about the EVM at all. Like you want to suggest to, to uh, change the gas cost for something. Then it's just a benchmark. To then see it's if just that's a benchmark, possible. right. On this sort of a series, at least by the time this episode is out, uh, I probably talked to Gavin and then Peter 
and now you on on this topic and both like Gavin has a sort of pseudo academic background he's at least touched that world Peter is sort of the same way Peter Peter has a, a double almost, PhD almost group. PhD almost. yes yes exactly <laughs> yeah yeah so like they they both come from that kind of place where i think both of them can easily read a paper and and implement that and i see a lot of um success in this space from people who can do that but do you see any need like any more need for crossover between academia and the blockchain space or you know is the academic contributions not that valuable or oh the the academic contribution is definitely valuable So I myself, uh, uh, what's the English term? Uh, masters in computer science and engineering, civil engineer. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's a prerequisite. I mean, we have people from 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 all places with all kinds of backgrounds. I think one of the really cool things uh, directly from academia that I've seen is where a group of researchers from Boston submitted to us this awesome paper about where they had dissected the peer-to-peer implementation in in go ethereum and found uh, found these cool eclipse attacks and it was done with i mean they really spent resources on that it's it was so out of the league of all other bounty submissions that i've ever seen uh, because it was a whole research paper on on our peer-to-peer implementation Uh, it was magnificent. I mean, so that's one type of academic contribution, actually digging in, researching either protocols or implementations. We see a lot of, or I at least see a lot of uh, academic interest and research groups focusing on like consensus protocols. I think that's a natural thing for academia to sort of jump into. It's where they've been a lot before and like now expanding it to like global consensus introduces some trickiness we can't just say oh let's just use pbfc <laughs> right right so uh there's a lot of like stuff happening there but we don't see that much crossover in like database design or you know networking is a thing that it's never been like the the most academic field maybe and so there's right so yeah so so and i agree because the there's obviously a gap between research and engineering yeah so researchers typically build theoretical models but when you're an engineer with like things are running on hardware and you need to or want to make updates to that you need something more than just uh, prototypes on paper Uh, so there's this kind of big gap if you have like a new theoretical database or people consensus engine and then an actual implementation do you think the blockchain space should pull in more of those academics or do you think they should live where they are create their papers and and it's up to us to try to implement stuff no we should definitely try to pull them in but i think maybe some areas are more suitable than others and one such very suitable area uh, is uh, in applying stuff like formal verification or formal-ish verification to smart contracts. With that, that area seems to be a very good breeding ground between 
like boots on the ground engineering and academic research. Yeah. So as a developer coming into this space, let's say um, you're sort of average Ruby or Java developer and you want to get into blockchain, what path do you see them taking in? Like, how do you get started in this space? How do you learn the stuff that you need to learn to start programming on this? I, I'm not sure. I think I think that's probably different from person to person. I think there are a lot of stories about how someone came into the field. Myself personally, I always want. I have always have this need to understand the low mechanics of something and then build build upwards instead of but i know some people would rather i mean it's enough for them to read the high level abstract and then work the way a bit down and maybe not even all the way down so it's it's i think it's very individual how how someone uh learns new concepts and what makes them get into this mode of uh, obsessively wanting to learn more uh, but I think a lot of the people in, in the Ethereum space have been bitten by this Ethereum bug and at some point kind of obsessively just dived in headfirst into the field. I would say that in the past couple of years, at least, the state of tooling, documentation, everything else requires that obsessiveness to actually be <laughs> successful. <laughs> because if you come in and like expect there to be a nice ID yeah. for everything and great documentation. You'll you'll just go. I have no clue what's going on. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we can improve that though. Get yeah, hopefully. And I mean, it's improving from the layer two stuff. Like the this this starting to be uh, development environments for for smart contracts and this. There's sort of a pipeline for like, you know, unit testing and integration testing and uh, automatic deployment and maybe even some security tooling in that pipeline. But getting into the like platform development, it's still hard. I mean, if you want to learn the intricacies of the EVM, you're going to have to study the actual EVM implementation uh, to quite some depth. Possibly multiple implementations. Yes. So... I t I only touched very briefly on this with uh, Peter before, but uh, he was sort of uh, ranting, <laughs> half ranting about how much of an how much easier of a life DApp developers have than core sort of client developers. Would you agree with that, or would you say that you know what is the difference between a DApp developer and and a core developer, and like, or is there even a difference? Well, there's definitely a difference. So DAP developers, they have, I mean, they, they need, it's pretty constrained. I mean, they, they have threats and they have assets, but it's a pretty constrained model and they can, uh, they, they have a lot of freedom to uh, implement their thing or their solution as, you know, according to the, the, the given constraints they can do kind of how they want to do. Whereas, you know, for the platform, the, the core developers, a much more diverse attack ability. I mean, let's say we see a simple optimization we can do in the EVM. 
it looks good. It's going to work great in 95% of the cases. Uh, it's going to make everything faster in 95% of the cases and way it's going to lead to short to, to us being able to actually have higher gas limits. So that would be great, right? But then the problem would be that no, there's these 5%, uh, which can be attacked where the actual worst case is a lot worse. And if someone were to, to exploit that, we could have a really, really bad scenario. And the, the, Block processing time would increase and you would have increased anchor rate and the network would start exhibiting these behaviors of uh, long distances between nodes, basically. And these kinds of... So, so there can be all these kinds of consequences and you really kind of need to think a bit differently about optimizations when, when building this platform. Uh, to never optimize for like the general case, but always make sure that, well, not at the expense of the worst case. I mean, a dev developer doesn't really have to think about um, that almost at all. I mean, if if something is suboptimal, they can choose not to use it and just like remove yeah. that from their code yeah. and do something else. Whereas um, on the client side, we have to assume that there can be a block entirely filled with this expensive thing. <laughs> And uh, yeah, that should still not impact the network negatively. I think Peter, I mean, Peter's sort of jokingly saying that DAP developers' lives are easy, but what I think he's referring to is um, you can sort of focus on your app and not really be concerned with the consequences of the, mm. for the rest of the network. Yes. And we sort of see this with CryptoKitties, which are a tenth of the state, I think, of the entire blockchain at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, yeah, they, they don't really have to be concerned with all the stuff that's underneath. right. They can just define their own. So this is what this is what we do. This is our model. We can yeah. we can just do it. That said, it's probably still not an easy life. There's still a lot of uh, security stuff that you need to do, and uh, the tooling is not great, et cetera, et cetera. So it's uh, probably still a pretty hard thing to do. Uh, but at least you know if, they shouldn't really have to be concerned with the. Uh, sort of abstraction layers and what's running underneath but at the same time maybe they should be a little bit more concerned with it than they currently are because it's an immature sort of platform yeah and i think i think there is actually a, a gap between what what the platform is and what people believe the platform is so I know there's there are a lot of focus, a lot of people who who wants to focus on like usability aspects, like how are we going to take Ethereum to the masses? We need great user experience and onboarding. We need to focus on onboarding experience and stuff like that. And personally, I'm kind of hoping that yeah, let's 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 not have uh, you know onboard the entire world, and it would be great if we don't have something that is even more successful than CryptoKitties was at this point, because it's really not, we really can't handle the world right now. Yeah. So to wrap it up, someone, a programmer wanting to get into this space, and, and by that I mean uh, either as a core dev or as a dev developer or any sort of contributor in the general blockchain ecosystem, what would your advice be to that programmer? My advice would be to to start exploring where you think it's it's uh, might be interesting if you're if it's a depth development or if it might be something else and then while you're doing that start digging where you stand 
and see what you know what would i want to do and and why can't i do it and can i just build the thing or improve this process a bit um and that might be you know and then start getting involved if you're using web3.py or if you're truffle ganache or if it's uh, something that is needed uh, for the node to deliver the data whatever it may be and help polish out the the rough edges where you're standing and and that's i think a lot of people kind of start just somewhere randomly that leads to them making a pull request and maybe joining the gitter channels or discord channels or whatever channels there are slack telegram whatever and start getting into this community and, and talking to other developers and explore from there cool well thank you very much for joining me and sitting down and talking about this uh, interesting topic thank you and to our listeners thanks for listening